Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast, and welcome to part two of The End of the World. Last time, we left off after talking about the temple cleansing narratives and the cleansing procedures for Surat in Leviticus. We also got into Matthew 24, which is one of Christ's longest discourses in all of Scripture. So our basic model is that there's the arrival of Jesus, everybody comes out of the holy city and ushers him back in, and uh, then there's the cleansing of the temple. We have the fig tree that pops up in most all of the temple narratives, uh, again in Luke as a parable. Um, John talks about it in his, uh, in his description of the cleansing of the temple, which happened at a different time. We also talked about that. And our overall thesis is that this fig tree represents the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, though we'll find out in this episode there's a little bit more to it than that. It is found without figs in Mark because it's not yet the time for figs, or at least that's what Mark tells us. And in Matthew 24, it reads, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs are tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. This, of course, came right after the description of the stars being cast down to earth. So we have uh, we have a little bit of timing clues in here, and it's timed based on this fig tree. So again, we have Mark saying it's not yet time for figs. We have Matthew talking about how uh, summer is coming near because it's starting to put out its leaves. Um, okay, so we have the thing that happens right after that is the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. By John's vision in Revelation, we hear this about the fig tree. And again, we start with this falling of the stars, right? So it's a, it's a similar time, but John takes it a little bit further into the future than we had in Matthew. Let me just read that part to you. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. And all this, of course, is a throwback to Isaiah who says... All the stars of the sky will be dissolved, and the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. So, let's consult our friend St. Augustine on this passage and see if we can make sense of this whole fig thing, how it's, uh, it seems to be a, a timing, and what it relates to with this whole stars falling from heaven. So now we're reading some commentary by St. Augustine. He says, talking about this particular passage in Matthew 24, or the church is the sun, moon, and stars, to which it is said, fair as the moon, bright as the sun. Then shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light. Song of Songs 6.10. Because in that ungoverned fury of wicked persecutors, the church shall not be seen. Then shall the stars fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven be shaken. Because many who seeming to be shining in God's grace shall give way to their persecutors and shall fail. Even the stoutest believers shall be shaken. And these things shall be after the tribulation of those days, not because they shall happen when the whole persecution is overpassed, but because the tribulation shall be first and then the falling away may come after. And because it shall be Throughout all those days, it shall be, quote, after the tribulation of these days, yet on those very days. So I like this interpretation 
very much, as I always do. Big fan of St. Augustine over here. So, although he takes more of a symbolic view that the earth, moon, and stars represent the church, this does not preclude it from having a literal fulfillment here from Matthew 24. Many of the fathers point out that the sun was darkened at the crucifixion. Therefore, we have precedent for these types of celestial, uh, celestial, how do you say that word? Anyways, these type of events, like the sun being darkened. And throughout church history, we have the idea of the days of darkness where no light can shine, only blessed candles able to function during this time of persecution. But what about this, this fig tree that keeps on popping up? Well, here's what Augustine says specifically about the fig tree, also from Matthew 24. Or, by the fig tree, understand the human race, by reason of the temptations of the flesh. Quote, when its branch is tender, i.e., when the sons of men through faith in Christ have progressed towards spiritual fruits, and the honor of their adoption to be the sons of God has shown forth in them. And as usual, I think he's right on target here. As we see from Revelation, the fig is mentioned during the sixth opening of the seal. And six is, as Augustine also points out, the number that represents man. So there's this close association with the fig tree in mankind, as he's just told us. So although we were meant as a race to be joined with the supernatural gift of life by eating of the tree of life, which of course returns at the cross through the Eucharist, we instead chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we believe to be the fig. Thus, it's fitting that the fig represents a variety of things in these passages that we've addressed. The human race is now associated with it, and so is the power of the law, which determines good and evil, which condemns us by our errors. And that type of association can be seen when we have the calling of, I think it's Nathaniel, who's studying the law under a fig tree when Jesus calls him. So when the tree is seen in the Gospels, it's not yet bearing its fruit. In other words, the fallen human race tainted by original sin has not yet produced the fullness of its sin, nor the fullness of the elect, both being a precondition for Christ's return. But by the book of Revelation, the fig tree is casting off unripe figs. And commentators point out that this does not mean that the fig is early in the season, but rather too late. The latest figs to come out never get to ripen because the winter comes for them too soon. And therefore, they are cast off the tree by the wind, at least by spring. Recall the words of Jesus from Matthew 24. <clears throat> Pray ye that your flight be not in winter. This is yet another reminder to stand ready for the return of Christ, ripen, ripened and not too late, un, uh, because if we are unriped at his return, we will be cast off. So note that God is patient. He lets this tree of humanity stand even past the season, just like we see him do with the nations of the Old Testament. He allows them to persist even in sin, way past the point that they probably merit judgment. And the fig tree from Luke? Well, that fig tree also wasn't bearing figs. And you know what he did? He digs around the roots and he puts manure in there. He goes down into the earth in this place of humility and stink and terribleness in order to bring about fruit. 
And that's, of course, what he does in Christ's death. He descends into the earth in order to give this fig tree, which represents this fallen humanity, which has joined itself with the knowledge of good and evil. He gives that tree every possible chance by even descending down to the root of it to try to bring life again. And yet, by revelation, we are past the time where it would produce fruit. We're all the way to the point where winter has come. Woe to he who has his flight in winter. And we're now to the point where these are dropping down to the earth. And of course, all this represents, as Augustine told us, the church, the sun, moon, the stars, right? See all the way back to Genesis with Joseph's vision. All righty. So what's this cursing of the tree in the Gospels? Why, why did he curse the tree? Did he curse humanity? No, no, he didn't do that. Christ is undoing the power of sin while he's on earth. That's what he was here for. <laughs> he's cursing the fig tree, not because he's cursing humanity, but because he's cursing the curse of humanity. So he's not um, bringing about death to the tree as if he's bringing about death to humanity. He's bringing about death to death. Um, so... It's appropriately fit in to this narrative that we've been talking about in the earlier episode of the cleansing of the temple, because the cursing of the tree is also a cleansing. It's a getting rid of this original problem. It's going down to the root of the tree. It's curing humanity from the very beginning. And as we saw from the reading in Leviticus, this type of cleansing prefigures baptism. And that's made even more clear uh, if you were in church last Sunday, and if you've been keeping up on the episode so you've timed this correctly, because we read about the Assyrian leper, um, Naaman, something like that, who has a type of proto-baptism at the words of the prophet Elijah, who cleanses himself in the Jordan River from leprosy. So again, we have this close association with this cleansing, like we read from Leviticus, and baptism, and the whole fig tree thing. Alrighty, alrighty. Um, so it's in our lives that, that God brings the, uh, fruit of this tree, um, to its final completion, right? So we, we read in Genesis that God says that in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. That the wages of sin is death. And like that leper we read about from Leviticus, we're only finally pronounced clean when the disease has swept over our entire body and turned us white. Thus, in baptism, we die to the flesh, as Paul told us. We die to sin, as Paul tells us. Not because we die per se, right? Like, you don't just, like, expire as soon as you're baptized. Be like, well, load them on the gurney now. <laughs> no, you don't, like, die in that way. Um, but neither did our first parents. Instead, you die because you are joined into Christ's body through baptism, and therefore you're joined to Christ's actual death, who really did die, in order for you to be joined with his resurrection. So it is baptism that the power of sin and death passes over us in, just like the angel of death from Exodus. We're passed over because we are marked by baptism, because of the blood spilled on the cross in Christ's death that we participate in. So I say all of this because the end of the world is close. It's cl it's just as close to the final generation as it is to you and me, as it was to everybody throughout salvation history. It's true. The end is near. Noah, in his day, saw the waters of the flood, which prefigure baptism, as scripture tells us. 
He saw the rapture of the evil ones that we discussed earlier and the cleansing of the world. And you too will die. You too will meet Christ. You will be judged and you will be raised either to everlasting life or everlasting death in hell. The end times is played out for every person. So if you allow Jesus to flood in, cleanse the temple of your body by baptism, and you remain in union with him, then you will be saved. Part of the reason that the end of times is not focused on so much in the Catholic world as it is in the Protestant world is because we believe that in a very real sense, we've always been in the end of times. Now, there was an incredible first century fulfillment of this, and that's what much of the, the, the scripture is concerned with, though that entails a further fulfillment at the end of time. But there is something ongoing. But in the Protestant world, they are missing something, and they're missing something quite vital. You see, they have this longing for the literal return of Christ in their lives in a tangible, visible, touchable way. But that's completely unmet in the Protestant church. However, that type of tangible, visible, touchable um, Christ's return is called the Eucharist in the Catholic world. And the fathers refer to the Eucharist, this continual coming of Christ, as the middle coming. So not the first one, not the last one, but it's in the middle. So the first century believers got to see Christ. They got to battle the Antichrists, endure tribulations, and watch as the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit remakes the world. And that's our story as well. The cleansing of the temple happens in you through baptism. You will face tribulations. That's a promise of scripture. You will meet Antichrists. You will face the devil. You will witness the coming of Jesus in every mass just like everybody throughout history has. And you get to look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life in the world to come. The Protestant world longs for the end of the world because they misunderstand the world that they're actually in. Swept under the rug in the Protestant Reformation was the fever for the end of the world that prompted it. Now, oftentimes you hear today people say, well, it was all about the abuse of indulgences. Yeah, maybe there was some of that. Pope Leo condemned it, for heaven's sakes. Um, others say, well, it was because the, the printing press and the Bible, and they weren't letting people just uh, have their own Bible. Yeah, true to an extent. And we did see what happened when they were run amok and got to make their own translations, got to uh, decide for themselves what was true and false, good and evil problematic indeed. We believe that we should reason from the heart of the church, from the union with God. Isaiah says, come, let us reason together. So God calls us to reason with him. Place of reason is the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the church. It's not meant to be separate. We're not meant to just take our Bibles and run away from the from the, the testimony of the fathers, from the apostolic secession, which, which holds the deposit of faith. No, no, no. This is meant to be in union with the church. But I digress. Much of the Protestant Reformation was surrounding the idea that it was the end of times. Martin Luther said that the end of the world would be no later than the year 1600. And still in the Westminster Confession of Faith that many Protestants, particularly the Presbyterian churches, accept, um, they call the Pope the Antichrist. They that's an article of faith. <laughs> you can read it yourself. In fact, I actually, before I was Catholic, read that part to my my Presbyterian small group. They were shocked. So if you are a Catholic listening, 
The hunger for the return of Christ is not left unfilled. You receive Christ in the Eucharist. Our end of times will indeed be in our lifetime, even if we are not the last generation. So with all this in mind, it ought to come as exactly no surprise, given what you've heard, that the book of Revelation is describing, in large part, the mass, the coming of Christ. Revelation means the unveiling. So I'll pass you off to Scott Hahn for details. I invite you to check out all of his awesome work about Revelation and the Mass. I forget what book it is, but I'm sure you can find it on his podcast, The Road to Emmaus, and wherever else he does things. Um, But a few things to point out. When you're reading Revelation, note all the similarities to a Mass. We have the incense, the altar, the Lamb of God as Paschal Sacrifice, the Gloria, the Great Amen, the distribution of manna, the reading of the books of Scripture, the vestments of the priest. We even have their priestly celibacy mentioned, the sign of the cross on the forehead, and the penitential rite, Um, just to name a few things. All right, so welcome to the end of times, (laughs) listeners. Um, I would encourage you to read through the book of Revelation this week, particularly those earlier chapters. And then on Sunday when you go to Mass, and you should be going to Mass, unless it's a vigil Mass on on Saturday night, you could do that too. But when you go to Mass this week, I want you to keep what you read in Revelation in mind and see if you can spot the similarities. See if you can see through the eyes of John in the book of Revelation what is happening behind the curtain, behind the veil, when he reveals what's really going on in heaven, um, just as it is on earth. All righty, so to tackle a few mysteries as promised, let's talk about the number 666. Reading from Revelation, Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who is wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had that mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, that number is 666. So Jimmy Aiken and Trent Horn did some really good podcast episodes recently. I encourage you to listen to those. They get into depth, particularly on how the 666 represents Nero Caesar. You see, it tells us to calculate the name um, from this number. And uh, Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, a whole bunch of languages just use letters and uh, as numbers. So if you think about uh, Roman numerals, you have like the I, V, X. Well, they just share the alphabet with their number system. And uh, there's no exception for this too. So 666 
were also letters. And uh, if you add up the, uh, the, the value of the letters in the name Nero Caesar, it comes to 666. Now, to just further this meaning, we find another translation, which has 616. But in that language, which I believe was Aramaic, well, Nero Caesar doesn't have an extra N, meaning it's missing 50 or something. So it adds up to 616. So in both cases, we have this confirmation. All right, so that's the first answer. But by no means the last, because I think I promised you three um, definitions of 666. St. Augustine, who we're apparently sourcing everything from this episode. <laughs> so St. Augustine points out that six is the number of man, because man was made on the sixth day. Revelation says that the number of 666 is the number of a man. Now, of course, it means Nero Caesar, but there's a further meaning, one that relates to today. Because all of this, from Revelation to Matthew 24 to the cleansing of the temple, all of this was meant for us in our time. Just as much as it was meant for the people it was originally written to, and just as much as it's meant for the people in the end generation. We have that fulfillment at the beginning, a fulfillment at the end, but an ongoing fulfillment, and we have truths that we ought to understand all the way from the beginning to the end. So this relates to us too. So what does 666 mean for us? Well, Augustine in his greatest work, The City of God, presents the whole of salvation history as the battle between the city of God and the city of man. And he says that the two cities are defined and unified by their different loves. One is the love of God, even to the contempt of self. And the other is the love of self, even to the contempt of God. So, what do we make of this citizenship of man? of this uh, city of God type, uh, type ideal? Well, it's represented by 666. That's how you become a citizen of the city of man. It's the emphasis of man, 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 because that's what six represents. And if you're familiar with the, uh, with the phrase, holy, 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 for instance, you know that when we repeat something three times, that's emphasizing it. So when we say 666, we're saying man, man, man. It's, to put it in an Augustinian term, it's the caving in on oneself, the incravatie or whatever it is. It's looking inward. It's, it's movement towards selfishness and vice. It's away from God. It's only thinking about our own ego. And it marks us on our head because we focus our minds, our thoughts on ourselves and not God. We trade the beatific vision, the vision of God himself, for the idolization of our own ego. And it marks us on our right hands because this symbolizes our strength, our action. Our selfishness spills out in our action and marks us for destruction at the end of time. But the godly are marked also. And they're marked with the name of God, it says in Revelation. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a marking also. Oh, which prophet is that? Uh, Ezekiel. I think Ezekiel talks about the marking that, that um, the, the righteous get. And it's a letter. And the letter is in the shape of a cross. So in Revelation, we're told we're marked with the name of God. And in Ezekiel, we're told that the righteous are marked with the cross. Now, if you've ever been to a mass, you've marked yourself like this, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and you drew a cross on your body. So the mark of God is a cross, 
and it moves from your mind down to your belly, over to your heart and across. Why? Well, to pull in good old Papa Plato, he tells us that there are these three parts of a person. We have this mind, we have the heart, and we have the desire. So we have the rational mind, then we this informs our loves, the heart, and then we have our base passions and appetites. So what we're doing when we make the sign of the cross is we're marking our minds, all of our thoughts, marking our, our bellies, all of our desires, and we're marking our hearts, all of our loves and passions with the names of God and with the sign of the cross. So the mark of the beast is the opposite of the sign of the cross. It flattens the self-giving nature of the Trinitarian community into an exaltation of self to the contempt of God. It rejects the mark of salvation, which is the cross. It rejects the humility and selfless love that we're drawing on our body, the very cross of Christ, and it replaces it with the idolatrous thoughts on our minds and the perverted actions of our hands. But there's a third meaning. It says that the mark is what permits you to buy and sell. And this, this what you're listening to today is a podcast on, the, on philosophy, theology, and economics. Now, many in the Catholic world dismiss economics as comparatively unimportant. But that's not what scripture thinks. And Satan certainly doesn't think that economics is unimportant. So to give you a little bit of homework, I suggest grabbing a copy of Friedrich Hayek's Road to Serfdom. Give it a read. I'm reading through it right now, and he points out two very critical ideas. One, that the use of money reflects our role in arranging the hierarchy of goods. So think back to old Uncle Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics, where he describes our role of being a virtuous person as arranging a hierarchy of goods. So when we buy and sell things, we're expressing our desires about what is good and what is most good. That's the, uh, the role of money to reflect that. And if we act virtuously, then the price system will rank the things which are in the hierarchy of goods, according to supply and demand, according to the desire to produce, the desire to consume, right? So if we act virtuously, that will be reflected rightly. So that's the first point, that the use of money reflects our role in arranging the hierarchy of goods. And two, that the control of the economy is the control of the means to every end, as he puts it. Well, most every end. We have a couple roles here on earth to um, uh, worship God, to care for the poor, to teach the faith. So let's say you want to worship God with, uh, you know, a church and an altar and, you know, all the material things that we need for our sacramental life. In order to get these things, you must engage in economics. You'll have to hire somebody to build the church or you're going to have to do it yourself, at which point you're going to need to buy those materials. Everything, the means to reach that end are going to entail economic life. What about caring for the poor? Well, what are you going to care for them with? Are you going to feed them? Are you going to give them drink? Are you going to give them a home? All right, well, there you go. You've launched right into the economic sphere once more. Well, I'll, I'll just uh, teach the faith. Well, how are you going to support the teachers of the faith, right? I, I mean, Paul had to engage in the market to support himself by, by making tents. So are you going to support them somehow? If so, welcome back to the economic sphere. So if you can control the means you can pervert the ends. 
and Satan wants nothing more than absolute tyranny in an animalistic hierarchy controlled by fear and violence, whereby every man, woman, and child is forced to obey his will. That's his dream come true. So if you want an idea of what Satan's control of an economy would look like, well, I give you the Soviet Union. It's replete with empty promises. It runs on lies. It's crushing poverty. It's perverted with suspicion and, and vice. It's, Marxism is Satan's religion. See earlier episodes. I'd say it's the second oldest religion. <laughs> um, economics, when it goes right, is very different. So when it goes right, it allows these individual people to freely use their talents to the service of others and in the most prudent way. It aggregates information and preferences in a way that helps us all use our freedom to properly arrange the hierarchy of goods, thereby living the virtuous life. It makes it easier to serve God and neighbor, not harder. It makes the goodness of the earth abundant. When economic goes right, the greatest among us would be the greatest servant, not the cruelest taskmaster. Economics gone wrong privileges the few based on power and connection or party loyalty. It becomes extractive, exploitative. It steamrolls the desires of others, and it thinks only of oneself. It results in scarcity, poverty, high prices. It plans for monopoly over competition, coercion over freedom. It disrespects the God-given right to own property. It disrespects the right to one's own labor. Two out of four sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance are economic sins. One is the oppression of the poor and the defrauding of the laborer. Right? James writes that the those are two. Right? The James writes that the coercion of the coins are testifying against the rich. The corrosion of the coins are... I can't talk. <laughs> the corrosion of the coins are testifying against the rich. This means that the money creators are mixing base metals into their coins, therefore defrauding workers. So yes, inflation of the money supply and therefore reducing purchasing power for common people, this is a sin that cries out to heaven for vengeance. Note, the oppression of the poor, forcing people into labor. This is the right hand of violence and coercion. The free market never forces anyone to do a dangerous or difficult job. It uses the total knowledge of all the wants and needs of the whole world and the relative supply of all desirable things, even into the future, with the combination of all economic human knowledge coming to bear to establish justice in prices, to make a fair balance, to, to offer only for trade, those times where, where both parties believe they will benefit. It doesn't force people into labor. It only relies on voluntary cooperation. So it does not rely on this mark of the right hand of violence and coercion. The mark of the forehead is the other economic crime. The scheming of those in power to exploit through complicated financial means. It's sly. It's hard to spot. It's deceptive. It's like the mixing of base metal into the gold or silver coins. It's only through their um, eventual degradation that it comes to light that they've been exploiting. It's only when we start to have an economic crisis that we realize that we've been, uh, we, we've been terribly financially mismanaged. So economics is a front line in the battle against evil. Recall what Jesus cleansed the temple of. One, the sellers of animals, particularly doves. 
Now, we know that there was actually a monopoly at the time where only those who ran the temple were allowed to buy and sell. They had this monopoly ability to supply the sacrificial animals. Now, contrast that with the free market because we're told that this wasn't the first time that we had uh, sacrificial animals for sale. You see, every single man three times a year had to come to Jerusalem, come to the temple and make sacrifice. But this was a big country and many people were going on foot. So the idea that you had to bring an animal from, I don't know, miles and miles away on difficult, dangerous roads to sacrifice, well, that's really hard. So people in the immediate area said, well, you could just like come over here and we'll just sell you one. And then you could just sacrifice that so you can keep your sheep over in your area and then just use one of ours. And maybe we'll send a sheep down at another time. Now, that type of free cooperation, well, that actually made it easier for people to worship God, easier to fulfill the law. But what the monopoly suppliers did is say, you have to purchase from us. They set themselves in opposition to God. They set themselves between God and man and said, you must go through us. They used the right hand of, ple- of oppression. They blocked the way to sacrifice. Now, the other group were the money changers. You see, at the time, usury was not allowed. You couldn't charge interest on loans, at least not from Jew to Jew, and the Jews were the ones coming to do the sacrifice. So these people had uh, the poor arrive and say, hey, we don't really have money to do a sacrifice. Now, the kind thing to do is say, hey, you're a fellow Israelite. Here, just take a dove. You know what? I have money. Take it. This is very important. I want to help you serve God. It's yours. That would have been the right thing. But instead, they thought, well, we can make them a loan. And so it's kind of like a payday loan that they were setting up there so that you could buy stuff to sacrifice. The issue was they can't charge interest. So how are they going to do it? They don't want to lend at no interest. Well, that's not going to work. Hmm, what to do? What to do? Well, here's a thought. Why don't we just change their money into a type of temple token. So like, you know, if you've ever been to Chuck E. Cheese, if you're a child of the 90s, you you know what I'm talking about. Um, You get these tokens and you can only use those. This is special money that you have to swap real money for. Um, So that's what they did. And the difference between the token value, which was stuff that they made, and the real money that was coming there, that's what they harvested their profit from because they couldn't harvest it from interest. And the fathers actually tell us exactly that. I forget which one it was. Might have been origin. Anyways. Um, so this is the second sin, the money changers. Now, these people care more about gain, economic gain, for themselves than the worship of God. They care about more about self. They're the ones who are stamped with 666. Man, man, man. Me, me, me. Self, self, self. Now, one could make the grievous mistake that money is in opposition to God. After all, one can either serve God or mammon. And money is the root of all kinds of evil. Note how I quoted that. All kinds of evil, not all evil. It's not what scripture says. But money's not evil. Money is not evil in and of itself. It must be used in the service of God. Just like anything. Idols of wood and stone, they're evil. They're an abomination, in fact. But that doesn't make wood and stone evil. Of course not. God's holy temple was made of wood and stone. 
Likewise, when we assemble our lives, our economic lives, we should never make money into an idol, just like we shouldn't make anything on earth, anything under the earth, (laughs) um, into an idol. Money is instead, like the wooden stone at the temple, to be used in service of God, in service of others, for worship. Now, in the first century, to buy or sell, one first had to offer incense to the emperor. One had to do an act of worship, to bow to the power of the state, to make the government, the state, the emperor into God. We're always to refuse this type of idolatry. Then, now, the end of times, makes no difference. This is always a temptation. Make the government into God. Why, there's a problem. Well, the government should fix it. We should give more power to the government. No. We're instead meant to support free markets, subsidiarity, plans for peace, plans for healthy competition, not monopoly, respect of the wages of the worker and the property of each person. We want stable prices from a well-regulated currency. We don't want it to corrode. We want productivity gains so that people can use their labor. We want wise investment because that's what investment is for. That's prudence. We want higher standard of living because we care about people. We don't just care about people's souls. We care about their bodies too. And we believe everybody is our neighbor. So we believe we should have free trade everywhere possible unless it really harms the common good in some way. But we care about everyone. We want to trade with them. We want everybody to develop their talents, to be raised in standard of living. We want a limited government so that we make a space for freedom for every person to arrange the hierarchy of goods in relation to the highest good who's God. We want limited taxes, for example, because we don't want to be constantly empowering a a government that can be oppressive, that can be um, in contravention to the interests of God. All right, so we want to model the servant, not the emperor, the cross, not the number 666. That's what we're shooting for here. So one of these lessons is that the state in the first century, the state today, and the state in the future— will set itself in opposition to God, will produce monopolies which make it harder to worship God, will make us have some type of mark that makes it difficult to have a good economic life, and instead will push us into violence, into coercion, into lies, into deception, into things which are against God, which don't represent being marked by Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, a community of mutual love, not exploitation. So at the end of time, economics will go wrong. And Revelation tells us about it. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. Now, these are ridiculously high prices. Given that the demand for staple food is relatively constant, it has an inelastic demand curve, if you will, this represents a dramatic crash in supply or a restriction of whatever supply there was. So think back to the famines in Marxist China or Marxist Russia or other evil places. Even today, we you might be, I told you this was relevant. <laughs> we have a run-up of prices, even of prices of things like staple foods. And it's because of the same sins which we've been talking about. 
It's a restriction of supply by the force of an overbearing government through the whole lockdown period. It's defrauding of the public through inflationary fiscal and monetary policy. So we all get a taste of the end times. You're getting a taste of it right now. A day's wages for two pounds of flour. Uh, Six pounds of barley for a day's wages. Yes, insane prices through these two sins that cry out for heaven. Um, So... Let me ask you this. Where in the temple would you guess that this type of perverted economic practice would be going on? And again, the temple is a microcosm. It's it's going to be a small representative sample of the entire universe. So where do you think this type of perverted economic practice likes to set up? In the court of the Gentiles? Well, yes, partially. Apparently, they did spill into this, and that does make sense because we see when we have a perverted economic life, particularly when it's closely associated with the worship of God, this makes the Gentiles, those people who aren't in the covenant community, um, pushed out. For instance, you see televangelists, you know, everything ultimately ends in, and now give me money, and now I need a private jet. <laughs> or you see financial mismanagement in Catholic churches, Um Near my high school, we had a church where the priest ran off with a million dollars. <laughs> so that makes the Gentiles pushed out. It makes them not able to come to God because you had a financial mismanagement. You had an economic sin in a place that ought to been be an opening for people who are not yet part of the covenant community. So yes, perverted economic practices there are pushing out the Gentiles. That's true. But the fathers who comment on these passages say that there was a particular place where this was set up. It was in the court of women. That's where this buying and selling was located. Hmm. So in the end of time, the desire for money, the emphasis on financial gain, on productivity, will be to the exclusion of a woman's distinctive place in worship. That happened in the first century. Jesus was not pleased. That will happen again at the end of times. And like everything else we're talking about, that also happens today because we live in an own, our own type of end times. Every one of us, the end is near. All right, so I invite you to listen to the non-cringy theology of the body episode. Okay, you did it. You're back. Awesome. So with all of that in mind, I think you see the clear parallels. But for those of you who did not yet listen, uh, let me run through a few things. Um, well, most of you listeners are from very wealthy nations. None of you actually have to have a uh, uh, two workers in your family. Maybe you live in a specific place with a type of uh, very high cost of living where this is made necessary. But if you just think through, at the height of the Roman Empire, even around Rome, the GDP per capita was the equivalent of approximately $600 a year. They lived. They were viewed as very wealthy. Today, with much higher productivity, um, we should be able to work Almost none at all. John Maynard Keynes, who is a terrible economist, uh, points out, well, he did a few things right. And one of the, (laughs) well, he even screwed this up. Anyways, he said that by the year 2000, the average person would only work, I think it was either 15 or seven and a half hours a week because he watched the growth in productivity and he figured people would eventually preference leisure over work. Now, he was wrong about that, but what he was right about was that In a sense, that could have been our reality, right? We don't have to work that much to have our basic needs met. 
We've just ratcheted up what we think a basic need is. Now it's a massive new house with air conditioning and indoor plumbing and electricity and insulated windows and, and two cars in the driveway that are unbelievably advanced and very reliable. And uh, the list goes on and on. So we don't necessarily need that. Um, but you know what? Actually, let's take a brief break here and we're going to pick it up. Okay, I'm right back. You see my recording software goes for about an hour for solo episodes, and if I go over that, um, well, it, nothing gets recorded. And I think, oh no, I've been yattering on. When did I get cut off? But I'm back. All right, where were we? We were talking about uh, two-worker families. We were talking about women. We were talking about work in general. So am I saying that women should not work? No, of course she can. Of course. But not as a means to an end, unless a need is truly dire. And the papal encyclicals back me up on that. So a woman ought to work as a good in and of itself, for the joy of it, or just because the work is good. And that could take many, many forms, including traditional employment, of course. And like anyone, she ought to arrange the hierarchy of goods wisely. So this could mean, hey, I just had a kid, and take some time out of the workforce. Great. Um, it could mean, hey, i just the type of person who needs something to do. Um, great. All right. This is a matter of prudence, arranging the hierarchy of goods wisely. Now, some things are better than others. So just like if you're, I don't know, trying to get just a shinier car to impress your neighbors, or you could spend more time with your kids. Well, maybe one of those goods is greater than the other. But with men, it's a little different. It's not just work for the joy of it or work because work is good. Um, no, men should work because it's necessary. Men should work as a means to an end, not an end in and of itself. Men ought to work as a sacrifice. And yes, they ought to work to create abundant wealth. That's a good thing. What we don't want to do is to collapse the unique means of worship that women particularly have into the economic sphere. That's the problem here. That is the issue with this economic life invading the court of women. We don't want that. So many point to the, the good, the true, and the beautiful as transcendentals. And yes, there is debate on which ones are actually transcendentals. But I think what's absolutely true is that each one of these are paths to God and tell us something about God. I would suggest that men and women both share truth. We're both ordered to a truth in a, in a very whole way. But men are optimized to go after the good, particularly the quantifiable, ergo the economic, that which can be arranged hierarchically and thus fit in the realm of economic exchange, where we need this hierarchical relationship such that we can, we can quantify things, we can apply prices to things. And sure enough, men love hierarchy and quantifiable things. For those guys who like sports, they love the numbers that are associated with them. They love to talk about who's the best, who's the next best of this and that. Um, if you know guys who like cars, they can quote you all the stats. This has so much horsepower. That is so much. This is the zero to 60 time. That's the quarter mile time. That's the skid pad. That's its uh, average G's around a figure eight. Um, that's this Nuremberg time. Oh, that one is faster than that one. Men love to see the rankings and hierarchies, and we love quantifiable things. But women are especially ordered towards the beautiful. 
And beauty is qualitative, not quantitative. Beauty isn't the sort of thing that's in that type of hierarchy like goodness is. And it therefore, because it's not quantitative hierarchical, it's not related in the same way to economic marketability. How often have you heard somebody say, this work of art is priceless? In other words, this work of art has no price. It is not in the realm of economic marketability. Yes, of course, everything has some amount of goodness. To, so in that respect, something could be in a hierarchy of goodness, sure. But when things are chiefly about beauty, we call them priceless because they're not hierarchically arranged, because they're not uh, quantifiable in the same way. It's a qualitative good. My claim is that women are ordered towards this type of way to God in a way that men aren't. So we're different in this way. So is the good beautiful and the beautiful good? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Is there some blending of these categories? Yes, obviously. There, there's sunset and there's sunrise, but that doesn't mean that there's not day and night. Woe to he who calls light dark and darkness light. Um, so you might not believe me about this, but let me prove it to you. Would you like to guess what the Hebrew name for the gate that leads into the court of women is? Hmm? The gate is, the gate is called beautiful. So the path to God for women into the court of women, that path is called beautiful. That gate is called beautiful. They enter into the divine through the way of beauty. Men do it more through the realm of goodness, the more quantitative hierarchical women, my female listeners, enter through the beautiful gate. That's your privileged place of, um, of union with God is by way of beauty. All right, and this in their time was ignored, was pushed out. And in our time, it's pushed out too. Men literally take the place of women in our culture, pushing them out of sports, pushing them out of this and that. that that's wrong. That's the same sin as moving in with this uh, type of uh, uh, economic life in the court of women. We don't want to drive this out. We don't want to remove the beautiful from our society. That's wrong. Oh, let's see. Maybe you are a female listener and you think, yes, that's all well and good, but I am not beautiful. I am quite ugly. Um, well, maybe you are. You know, stuff happens, whatever. Not everybody gets the same set of cards. But may I suggest that beauty can always be found and found in the greatest degree, not in just physical beauty, but in the way that you discharge your duty as daughter, wife, mother, sister, grandmother, or friend. Like Mary did, right? Or cousin, right? <laughs> For her cousin Elizabeth. So it's in this discharging these duties that there is beauty. That's what I would suggest. I don't think that when Jesus was born, he saw Mary and thought, eh, you know, there are more beautiful women in the world. He, saw, he thought, this is the love of my mother that I specially created. Um, that was beautiful. That relationship between Mary and Jesus was beautiful. And it was relation of uh of son to to mother that's a that's a beautiful thing so fulfill your duty in these different roles and that is a source of beauty just like mary did all righty so i promised to tell you what happened to the golden calf of exodus once it grew up so no better way to start than to read some exodus 
This is quite the passage. All right. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it with fire, and he ground it to powder, to powder, scattering it on the water, and he made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them to such great sin? Don't be angry with me, Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go out before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any golden jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord and the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to your side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. And the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. And Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers. He has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They made themselves gods of gold. And now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written them in. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Taking their wealth and using it to make an idol. Spurning the true worship of God. Mandating the uh, the cleansing and judgment at the camp by God, right? So we have this great cleansing event. This great sin is known by a symbol. The symbol of the golden calf. Using their money to create an idol where God had ordained right worship. Ooh, that's a big sin. Fast forward to the cleansing of the temple that we talked about in the last episode. What is printed on the money that's being exchanged, on those Chuck E. Cheese tokens that we talked about earlier so that they could defraud their neighbor through this evil sin of, uh, of, of perverting the, the relative prices of these currencies? Well, quite suitably, they put the image of a bull, a calf that grew up, if you will. This is the same sin. It's just in a later covenant age. It's at the time of Christ. Same sin, though, for sure. Now, these bulls are meant to be sacrificed, not to become idols. Money is meant to be used in the service of the kingdom of God as a powerful tool, like the ox, like the bull is a powerful tool. It's made to uh, be fruitful. That's what it's meant to do, not to become the aim it's ridiculous. That's why we have sacrifice, to show that this is not the ultimate good. We'll sacrifice this for the higher good. That's a whole point of worship. Worship meaning the assigning of worth. That the bull is not the highest good. Money is not the highest good. Instead, the highest good is God himself. We're not to make idols of these things. 
Now, I do, by the way, very much like the punishment of Moses, where he grinds the gold into the water, grinds it into powder, and makes them drink it. And there's some cool symbolism there. Um, in fact, this whole passage is fantastic in a variety of ways. We have these plagues on the people. We have the death by the sword. Uh, we even have that book that people are being blotted out from. All of this is very much uh, Book of Revelation imagery. Uh, we won't get have time to get into all that. Okay. Our last section, let's talk about these first century fulfillments of the end of times. Um, yeah, there was the destruction of the temple at 70 AD, but everybody knows that. And sure, we have the stars and, and different celestial objects, which are, are there falling literally from the sky. So there was that. Um, yes, we have the persecution of Nero, but everybody knows that too. But what you might not know about is a character named Simon the Magician. Remember I said a while ago that the selling of doves was zeroed in by the fathers because the dove represents the Holy Spirit? Well, let's see if we remember this guy from Acts. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was someone great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen on any of them, but uh, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered money, saying, Give me this power also, so that any one of you, um, so that any one of you who I lay the hands on will have the Holy Spirit. Um, but Peter said, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither uh, part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Does that sound like Exodus? I think it does. Um, for I see that you are all in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you say may come upon me. Simon, not Simon Peter, the evil Simon, he goes on to found the Gnostics, a group so large that it was believed by many to be even bigger than the real church. Simon, like the magicians of Pharaoh, had the power to deceive, like the false prophet in Revelation. He befriends Nero and is basically the false prophet to the beast. Simon at one point even buries himself for three days and stages a false resur resurrection. He claims in various places to be the Son of God, the incarnation of God the Father, and the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. Read a few uh, excerpts from the Catholic Encyclopedia. Um, he asserted that Helena, who went about with him, was the first conception of the deity, the mother of all, 
by whom the deity had created the angels and the anons. The cosmic force had cast her into, into corporal bonds from which she was released by Simon as the great power. So this is, of course, an evil version of the Virgin Mary, somebody who is named by uh, the first conception. Of course, Mary is the Immaculate Conception. She even revealed herself with that as her name in, I forget what revelation. Anyways, uh, lords, I have no idea. So we have this false Virgin Mary that was also released by, uh, from her, um, from her sin in this preemptive way. So Jesus, of course, uh, saves Mary from ever having either the original sin or personal sin. And Simon, uh, Simon the magician, who's pretending to be Jesus for this false, uh, this false incarnation, this false resurrection, well, he claims that he uh, saved Helena from her types of evil by his great uh, cosmic power. Um, here's a few more uh, excerpts here. So the ecclesial writers of the early church universally represented him, Simon the Magician, as the first heretic. He was even named the father of heresies. St. Jerome of Rome, or St. Justin of Rome, describes Simon as a man who, at the instigation of demons, claimed to be God. Justin says further that Simon came to Rome during the reign of the Emperor Claudius and by his magic arts won many followers so that though these erected on the island in the Tiber a statue to him as a divinity with the inscription Simon, the holy God. The statue, however, that Justin took for one dedicated to Simon was undoubtedly one of the Sabine dinities, something and rather da 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 da. Moving on with the same quote here. Um, by his magic arts, Simon had also sought to win the emperor Nero to himself, an attempt which he had been uh, thwarted by the apostles. As proof of the truth of his doctrine, Simon offered to ascend into heaven before the eyes of Nero and the Roman populace. By magic, he did rise into the air at the Roman Forum, but... The prayers of the apostles Peter and Paul caused him to fall, so that he was severely injured and shortly thereafter died miserably. Anarabas reports this alleged attempt to fly and the death of Simon, um, with still other particular people. Da, 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 da. This legend later uh, led to the erection of a church dedicated to the apostles at the spot of Simon's fall near the Via Sacra, Above the forum, the stones of the pavement on which the apostles knelt in prayer were said to contain the impression of their knees, and this stone is now saved in the church of Santa Fresca Romana. All right, now the Catholic Encyclopedia seems to be very um, iffy on whether or not all of these happened. It, it seems to think that these are legends, but... It does pull from what we just read, pulls from some very early non-canonical sources. And there is at least this physical evidence um, that was commented on. For instance, the statue and the stones which are in the Church of Santa Fresca Romana. Now, I suspect that in, uh, in Revelation, when we're told about these two witnesses, which witness against the beast and the false prophet, I suspect the two witnesses in their first uh, fulfillment would be Peter and Paul, the ones who stop this false ascension, this parody of Christ's ascension into heaven, um, 
by, by their prayer, which smashes Simon the Magician back to earth and kills him. Now, who the two witnesses at the end of time will be? I do not know. Some have suggested that it will be two people who never actually died. One would be Enoch, who is taken up, and the other would be Elijah. Though other people have said it's the two that appeared on um, the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses. But I guess we don't know. Okay, well, there is so much more to say on this topic that it's ridiculous. I have not even scratched the surface. I would encourage you to read up on the Catechism on the End Times. Read the book of Revelation. Uh, don't read much of any Protestant sources because they're all over the place. To prepare for the coming of Christ in your life, both at your death and in the Eucharist, the middle coming, and to recognize economics as a key battle crown, one that Satan desperately wants to win so that he can push out women from the court of women, so that he can reduce everything to only economics, so that he can put money in the place of God, so that he can control all the means to all the ends, therefore preventing us from being able to achieve our ends, so that he can secure monopolies to, uh, to benefit only the people who serve him, etc., etc. Oh, here's a few things I didn't get around to doing. I believe in an earlier episode, I did a uh, some type of exposition on the time that Jesus cast the demons, uh, the legion of demons into the um, pigs by a neighboring hillside. I should have included that into this episode because basically what's going on is this was Samaria, I believe. And there's a big Roman garrison. So the people here are actually breeding pigs. They're Jews, but they're breeding pigs in order to feed the Roman army. So basically, they're selling out in support of their own occupation by raising these evil creatures. They're preferencing their own money, their own uh, safety, their own whatever else, material gain, over the uh, observation of the, of the law. So they're raising these pigs. So when Jesus cast the demons out, he cast them into the pigs to destroy this. So what he's doing is he's getting rid of the means of their um, of their own oppression. He's getting rid of the food that would feed the armies that are uh, keeping them in slavery and subjection. So I would suggest that uh, this is kind of what's going to go on in the end of time, where God does bring plagues, right? We, we see the sword in, in, in Exodus. We, we hear about the plague that comes upon them afterwards. We see the whip of cords in John. We do, in fact, have this, um, uh, this chastening, this, uh, these plagues, these things which come about. But what they're chiefly about is destroying the means by which we are being oppressed by Satan and his demons. Oh, let's see. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, I will remind you that if you did, please leave a review that really helps the podcast. Uh, do that on whatever players you have for, for this, whatever you're listening on. Uh, tell friends about it if you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy the upcoming episodes. I invited Dr. Robert Delfino to come and defend the fifth way of Aquinas. So I think that one should be good. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.